the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Do you know the name Thaddeus Stevens, radical Civil War era Republican who advocated for an end to slavery and poverty and other American ills? If not, why not? Today we're going to talk with the author of a biography of Thaddeus Stevens about the difficulty this country has preserving the stories of actual heroes and why so many have been forgotten. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad that you have joined us. A little later in the hour, we are going to talk about Thaddeus Stevens. Do you know who that is? He was a radical Republican and abolitionist who changed the historical trajectory of this country in the Civil War era. His life raises real questions about who our collective heroes are who they should be, and who as Americans we should maybe strive to be more like. But before we get to that conversation, we really need to talk about the modern Republican Party in our state and what is going on in the gubernatorial primary. So leading up to his official announcement, a lot of people thought that James Craig, the former chief of police here in Detroit, would be the favorite for the Republican nomination to become next governor here in Michigan. But ever since making that announcement in September, Craig has met with all kinds of trouble. A record 10 Republicans are seeking the party's nomination for governor, each believing that they can be the one to unseat Governor Gretchen Whitmer, a Democrat, in November. But to win the nomination, you have to be on the ballot. And there are some real questions that have come up about whether Craig and other candidates should actually be on the ballot here in August. In order to appear on the primary ballot, Michigan requires candidates to collect at least 15 signatures from voters. But some challengers to Craig's candidacy say that nearly a third of the signatures submitted by his campaign were fraudulent. If this proves true, it would lead to an early end for the Craig campaign. But how does something like that happen? Is there any precedent for this kind of fraudulent signature gathering leading to the end of a campaign? And what does it mean that people like James Craig have been running around casting aspersion on Detroiters in particular about the 2020 election, saying that there was massive fraud in Detroit as we balloted in the presidential election. And that led to uh, the idea that uh, Joe Biden had won Michigan, which they say, hmm, we're not sure if that's true. James Craig has said that he believes that there are problems with the voting in 2020 in Michigan. Really ironic that he now faces serious questions about fraudulent signatures to get him onto the ballot. So to help me unpack all of this and understand what really is going on, I'm joined by Jonathan Osting. He is a political reporter for Bridge, Michigan, who has been following this story really closely. Jonathan, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hey, good morning, Stephen. Thank you for having me. So what's going on with James Craig's campaign? Give us some context here. What are they accused of doing wrong? Yeah, well, I think you summed it up fairly well. Um, you know, you have to get 15,000 valid signatures. The Craig campaign turned in about 21,000, but he's been challenged on two fronts, one by a super PAC supporting another gubernatorial candidate, Republican Tudor Dixon, and then the Michigan Democratic Party. Both of them 
alleged that some of these signatures submitted by Craig were frauds, were forged. Uh, but the Democratic challenge goes into real specific detail and appears to have uncovered um, what's called a round-robin scheme, where petitioners uh, get together, perhaps all in the same room, and essentially sign each other's petition sheets. So they pass them around in a circle. Um, that way, if you look at just one petition sheet, there's different handwriting for each signature. But if you look across multiple petition sheets, you'll see patterns. You'll see the same handwriting appearing on multiple petition sheets. Uh, and the allegation is that these circulators likely unbeknownst to Craig, um, you know, forged uh, thousands of signatures in this uh, manner. Now, the the issue actually popped up in several other challenges as well. Um, Democrats reviewing Perry Johnson and other gubernatorial candidates' um, petitions found uh, signatures submitted by six of those same eight circulators that they think are fraudulent. And then in two judicial races in Oakland County and Wayne County, um, some of these same circulators again popped up uh, in uh, in nominating petitions for those judicial candidates and challenges from their opponents alleged almost the identical thing. You know, these sort of so different different challengers came to identical conclusions um, looking at completely different petition sheets. So it seems these circulators got hired somehow by multiple campaigns. And uh, the evidence, you know, looks pretty damning. I mean, Chief Craig's attorney uh, even said this week that the campaign may have been defrauded uh, or duped. Uh, they still hope that they have enough signatures, even if um, the forged ones are tossed out, but they've, you know, acknowledged that they might have been, uh, they might have been taken advantage of here by these circulators. So, is there any precedent for a gubernatorial candidate or a gubernatorial hopeful to get disqualified for this kind of thing? I mean, I, anyone who's paid attention to politics and campaigns has heard of this kind of thing going on. Uh, in, in small instances, I, I have to say I've never heard of it happening um, as robustly as the allegations here, and we should be clear about that. There isn't anything that's been decided about what actually happened, but but the allegations here are very serious, it seems to me, and and I can't remember another time that we had um, we had the possibility of losing candidates, multiple candidates in a in a governor's race because of it. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I don't think there is a whole lot of precedent for this. I mean, the the closest proxy is um, uh, Congressman Thad McCotter in 2012. Mm-hmm. He um, his you know campaign operatives themselves were accused of uh, wrongdoing, photocopying signatures even on petition sheets. And in the case of congressional candidates, you only need a thousand signatures, so it's a much lower bar. Um, so it's sort of a different situation. But yeah, I mean that. That's the last time I can recall a candidate was actually kept off the ballot because of, you know, alleged fake signatures, um, at least a high profile candidate in Michigan. So it's very rare. It's especially rare for, uh, you know, a front runner uh, like like James Craig, who seemingly would have resources to hire um, competent campaign folks uh, to review signatures before turning them in. That's usually how these operations work, campaigns collect the signatures, and then they, you know, conduct quality control uh, measures themselves to make sure that what they're turning in is legit, and they're not going to end up in this very same situation Craig finds himself. But apparently, uh, that did not happen, at least not to any great extent uh, for the Craig campaign. Yeah. And I want to take a second here just to to note the what this says, potentially, about these campaigns, it is very difficult to manage all of the different aspects of a campaign um, to meet all of the requirements of the law and to to make sure that, you know, you're doing the things that you can do to win. It requires a lot of organization. It requires uh, a sophisticated level of, of management. And regardless of the outcomes here, I think it says something about the Craig campaign and some of these others about who's managing them and who's running them that we are even facing these kind of questions at this point after the, the signature deadline. And, and that's not to, 
to necessarily cast dispersion on those people who are running it. It, it, it is to, to acknowledge that, you know, everybody thinks it's just easy to, to, to go and toss your hat in the ring and decide that you want to run for something. It's actually quite hard and it is very complicated. And this is a reminder that if you don't have the right folks minding the store, uh, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble. Yeah, you're not the only one saying that, Stephen. A lot of Republican uh, operatives, you know, professionals in this field that I've talked to in the last week have just been shaking their heads, sort of befuddled um, that uh, the campaign would have uh, allowed James Craig to even get into this situation. Now, I mean, ultimately, you know, Craig is the head of the campaign. um, And, you know, so he's going to face criticism for this, whether he makes the ballot or not. I think people are going to question, you know, what it says about uh, his uh, ability to lead uh, a state if he has trouble leading a, a campaign of this kind. Um, you know, those issues <laughs> certainly will, will come up in the fall if he does, in fact, qualify for the ballot. Um, but, you know, um, as you mentioned, these, you know, this this is seen as sort of a competency hurdle, sort of the first check to actually qualify for the ballot. Um, 15,000 signatures is not a small number. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it is something that, um, you know, other candidates were able to meet Gretchen Whitmer, the Democrat governor, of course, running for re-election. She turned in uh, the maximum 30,000 signatures, um, so gave herself a real cushion in case any of hers uh, were um, tossed off, uh, you know, were, were invalidated for any reason. Um, James Craig didn't give himself that huge of a buffer. Um, the, the Tudor Dixon super PAC alleges that James Craig campaign tried to turn in another 4,500 signatures uh, on the deadline day, but actually missed the deadline by about 30 minutes. Uh, perhaps he wouldn't be in this situation if they hadn't missed that deadline. Uh, and similarly, this week, um, you know, his attorney did uh, formally respond to the signature challenge, but he did so two days after the deadline to respond to the signature challenge. So uh, it's not even clear whether the Board of State canvassers who are ultimately going to decide whether um, James Craig has enough signatures to make the ballot, whether they'll even take into consideration his rebuttal because it was filed late. So they're they're under no obligation to actually do so. Um, so, yeah, like I said, a lot of Republicans even really shaking their head here as they see the situation unfold. Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Jonathan Osting, a political reporter for Bridge, Michigan, uh, who has been following uh, the story of these potentially fraudulent signatures uh, that former Detroit Police Chief James Craig uh, turned in to get himself on the ballot to run for governor uh, in the August primary. Uh, We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. What do you make of James Craig's campaign? Do you think... Submitting potentially fraudulent signatures should be grounds for disqualification. Or do you think maybe this is not such a big deal and maybe we ought to cut him some slack? Uh, Does this change your voting strategy, this idea that he might be disqualified and perhaps some other candidates uh, might not make the ballot as well? Uh, Also give us a sense of what you make of this Republican field of 10 who all say they could do a better job running our state than current governor, Democrat, uh, Gov- uh, Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter and put comments there, and we can work you into, uh, we can work you into the conversation. Um, I, I want to talk about the potential outcomes here, Jonathan. Um, if he is, um, if, if, if the... Signatures are found to be fraudulent. Is there anything other than disqualification that he might face? Um, and um, you know, if, if he if he can prove this wrong, what 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 happens? I mean, uh, where where are we likely headed here? Yeah. So what happens next is the Michigan Bureau of Elections is going to review petition sheets from all the candidates. So regardless of whether they've been challenged or not, and they're going to make a recommendation to the Board of State Canvassers, which is a bipartisan group, two Republicans, two Democrats, who will decide whether to certify these petitions. Now, Craig's campaign, again, is you know, sort of acknowledging that there may have been some forged signatures. But what they're asking the state to do is not simply toss out every petition sheet from uh, that group of circulators, because potentially those circulators did turn in 
some legitimate signatures in addition to the forgeries. That's sort of what the Craig campaign is is banking their hopes on at this point, that they still will have enough valid signatures. Because if the if the Bureau of Elections and the Board of Canvassers agree that all of those signatures collected by those specific circulators should be tossed out, he will not make the ballot. He will not have 15,000. It's a, it's a requirement. I mean, there's no way around that. Now, the, the Craig campaign could also take the matter to court. Uh, he could appeal to the Michigan Court of Appeals or perhaps even the Michigan Supreme Court. But it's a very tight timeline. I mean, the state basically has to start finalizing the ballot by June 1 um, because uh, clerks need to start printing them and getting them out to overseas, getting absentee ballots out to overseas voters uh, ahead of the election. There are all requirements written into state law about when those, um, you know, have to go out. So it's a very tight window here. And, um, you know, the experts I talked to said they think there is a legitimate chance that Craig is going to be kept off the ballot. Now, as I mentioned, um, uh, Perry Johnson's signatures are also being challenged, mm-hmm. and Tudor Dixon, another gubernatorial candidate, is also being challenged because of an error on the header of her petition sheets. Um, potentially, those candidates could face each issues as well, uh, but the Craig uh, challenge seems to be the most substantive um, and uh, really the, the the most level of specificity and detail we've seen so far in terms of the allegations raised. Mm. Uh, does this suggest to you perhaps along with you know some of the other news that's coming out of the campaign i mean he's he's gone through a couple of advisors that's not uncommon um but does it seem as though this is a campaign that has struggled to get its footing and and to 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 build the kind of momentum that i think we all thought would come pretty easy to a guy with his name recognition and his record yeah i think that's fair to say i mean it is important to note that despite um, definitely some some struggles some turnover, um, and in fact, James Craig himself saying, hey, I'm resetting my campaign because I know, uh, you know, I, we were, my, me and my campaign people were at odds early in this campaign about how to actually run it. Uh, despite all those things, he has led in every poll of the gubernatorial primary field. So he is still a front runner. However, uh, he hasn't turned that front runner status into huge fundraising windfalls, which usually follow. He hasn't turned that into the kind of momentum you mentioned that usually follows. In fact, while he has still led polls, the most recent one conducted uh, just recently uh, this month for the Detroit Regional Chamber um, found he leads, but only with 23% of the vote among a big field. That's still the highest number by far. Uh, but he had been, you know, upwards of 50 percent uh, early, early in the in, early in the cycle. So he he's the leader, but his lead has shrunk um, and he's failed to really uh, find a foothold and um, find a consistent and winning message as well. I mean, he's sort of changed his approach now a couple of times. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's quickly take uh, Levi from Southfield. Uh, Levi, what's on your mind? Hey, Levi. Hello. Hey, go ahead. Uh, so, Stephen, I used to be a part-time Uber driver, and I remember picking up uh, these circulators and taking them from one shopping center to another. <laughs> <laughs> what troubled me was that this young man was from Florida, and he was circulating petitions for referendum, which mm. was mis- Michigan-specific, and and, you know, was talking to people about why they should sign these petitions. Uh, that, tr- that troubled me. You know, I think the original intent of petitions was that you get your volunteers to go out there. 15,000 signatures for a statewide race is nothing. Mm-hmm. So that's, it's part of you showing you've got support is 15, you know, 15,000 signatures from volunteers. Uh, part two is I recall that Mayor Duggan had a problem with petitions and ran successfully as – a write-in candidate, so Craig could Craig could do that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, that's a great that's a great memory to invoke uh, um, uh, that that disqualification of uh, of Mayor Duggan before he was mayor uh, that forced him to uh, um, that that forced him to to run as a write-in. I'm trying to remember the specifics of 
the problems there. Um, I can't remember. I, I think it was about the it was about residency and the time for residency uh, to be able to, to to file or to start raising. Uh, money or to start collecting signatures, um, but that that question about who gets to circulate these petitions, this is an actual issue here in in Michigan, um, and it has to do far more. I think uh, you're right, Levi, with um, with referendum questions and and who's circulating uh, those petitions. Uh, Jonathan, talk about how that relates to this story that we're following now with regard to candidates. Yeah, well, certainly some candidates do use volunteers. Um, a couple of Republican candidates, Garrett Saldano and Ryan Kelly, have touted the fact that they did not pay any circulators to get their signatures, that they, you know, simply showed up at grassroots events and they got actual, uh, you know, supporters to circulate petitions for them and things of that nature. But, you know, in modern campaigns, most do end up paying for signatures at that at this point. And that really became an issue this year because, like a lot of other industries. There's been a worker shortage in the sort of circulator, petition circulator industry, um, and that caused prices to really skyrocket. And some experts I've talked to said they think that you know, the uh, the pay that these circulators were earning may have incentivized them to cheat this cycle. So for instance, um, petition circulators are, all, are often paid by the number of signatures they gather. Um, this year, one circulation firm told us they were paying $20 per signature, which is four times as much as they were paying uh, four years ago, uh, the last time there was a gubernatorial um, nominating petition cycle. So the candidates had to pay a lot more money. There were fewer circulators to go around, and that created this huge demand and rush and seemingly a scramble at the last minute where candidates were uh, trying to hire anybody they could. And again, we don't know at this point, what circulation firm uh, James Craig hired or what subcontractors might have hired these uh, circulators who allegedly committed forgery. But some folks I've talked to said that, that these folks have been known in Michigan and that they are on their do not hire list. Uh, but perhaps, uh, you know, desperate times, lack of workers, um, somebody decided to hire these people again and uh, it could come back to bite them. Okay, Jonathan Osting of Bridge, Michigan. Always great to have you with us on the show. Thanks so much for coming by to explain what is going on in the Republican gubernatorial primary. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Coming up next, we're going to talk about a very different politician, one from the 1800s who fought for abolition and whose life asks us questions today about who gets remembered as an American hero and why. Stay tuned for more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WBET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. American ideals and values are always contested, always in some sort of debate. That's the whole intent of our country. But this moment that we're in now, it feels especially ripe for hotly debated conversations about values beliefs, and our collective goals as Americans. And because of that, many historical figures are being reconsidered, cast in new lights, recast, in some cases, in very different light. A lot of the public is questioning why we have sanitized so much of our history and provided unquestioning loyalty, not just to people who were Confederates, for instance, but also to some of our founders. So as people tear down statues and alter town squares, there are some open questions. Who should Americans honor? Who should we collectively appreciate and cherish 
for their contributions to this country? Who should we maybe be striving to be more like? And I think overarching all of those questions is this one. Is it that easy? Is there a simple matrix that we can kind of filter everything and everybody through in order to determine who's a hero and who's a villain? Think about your own life. Is it really easy to put people or things into very simple categories, especially over long periods of time? Bruce Levine is a history professor emeritus at the University of Illinois who recently wrote a book about a guy named Thaddeus Stevens. Stevens was a radical Republican who grew up poor in Vermont and came to support abolition, to fight economic inequality, advocate for reparations, and usher in Reconstruction during his time as a representative from Pennsylvania in the Civil War era. And yet, there are a lot of people who have no idea who that is. Levine argues convincingly that Stevens was an important American whose legacy should be honored, cherished, and remembered. And he fits into this context of these questions we're asking ourselves right now about what matters in America and American history and what we should be reconsidering. Professor Bruce Levine, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen, and good morning. And please call me Bruce. (laughs) I, I will do that. Okay, so let's start with who Thaddeus Stevens was, talk about his record, and why you argue that he's such an important figure in American history. Okay. Well, just as you just said, he was born poor, in Vermont, uh, was educated there, uh, born into a poor farming family that had recently moved to Vermont from Massachusetts in search of better life and better soil, Um, but nonetheless a family that remained poor during his youth. Um, After acquiring an education, he moved to Pennsylvania, became an attorney, and most importantly, moved into national politics. Uh, He uh, early was a determined opponent of slavery, an enemy of slavery, and not only of slavery, but of race prejudice and racial discrimination. So in the mid-1830s, he refused to sign a revised state constitution in Pennsylvania that excluded black men from the vote, and he refused to sign it precisely because it did exclude black men from the vote. So by the 1830s, at the latest, Stevens was, for all intents and purposes, an abolitionist. He eventually moves uh, through a series of political parties in search of one that really fits his radically democratic world outlook, and finally becomes one of the founders of the Republican Party. In the middle of the 1850s, gets uh, uh, elected to the House of Representatives, uh, first uh, at the end of the 1840s as a Whig, and then at the end of the 1850s as a Republican, and in the House of Representatives becomes simultaneously a leader of the Republican delegation there, and a leader of the party's most radical, most anti-slavery wing, the so-called radical Republicans. And so the things that he does and the things that he says, talk about why they elevate him in your mind to the status of hero. There were lots of people at that time on both sides uh, of, of this issue whom we remember either as heroes or villains. What, what in your mind makes him stand out? Well, the fact that he was, first of all, vocally and energetically anti-slavery in the 1830s placed him in a very small, tiny minority of the white population 
in the United States, uh, a population that had long tolerated slavery and that was deeply imbued with anti-black racial prejudice. The fact that he was not only anti-slavery, but also a genuine racial egalitarian put him in an even tinier minority. And perhaps most importantly, the fact that he effectively fought from the 1830s through his death in the late 1860s for the end of slavery and the end of racial discrimination insofar as he could accomplish uh, the latter uh, makes him a crucially important figure. He pushed public opinion and he pushed the Republican Party further and further and further than it probably would otherwise have gone to put an end uh, to this hell-spawn institution of African-American slavery and did his best to erase uh, racial discrimination in the law. That, to me, makes him an extremely important person. He was recognized as such at the time by friend and foe alike uh, and was vilified or celebrated for those accomplishments precisely um, again by friends and foes. And he is somebody who pushes the Republican Party, particularly in Congress, uh, to these these sort of at the time radical extremes. Right? Uh, th- there are right. these debates going on in Congress about slavery, especially in the run up to uh, the war, and then of course uh, uh, during the war and the debate of the Civil War amendments to, toward the war's end, um, and. Stevens is somebody who is is urging uh, other Republicans to be more radical, to not accept the the compromises uh, that they are debating about equality. He is saying that um, that the, the the goal is equality of all kinds, which at the time was a, a particularly unpopular notion, um, even among. Other, other Republicans. Exactly right. Exactly right. So Stevens is the conscience, um, probably the most vocal conscience. He's not the only one. There are other radical Republicans in Congress, and there are other extremely effective and vocal abolitionists like Frederick Douglass outside of Congress. But he is a key driving force in the government to, during the war, make the war more and more an anti-slavery crusade, which is not the way the Republicans began the war, Mm -hmm. and to push the Republican Party into a stronger and stronger anti-slavery commitment during the war, which, which push succeeds, and then after the war to continue to fight to transform not only the states of the South, but the states throughout the United States into uh, racially egalitarian democracies. Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Bruce Levine. He's a history, history professor emeritus at the University of Illinois who recently wrote a book about Thaddeus Stevens. It's called Thaddeus Stevens, Civil War Revolutionary Fighter for Racial Justice. Uh, we're talking about that book and about Stevens' life, but also about this notion of American heroes. Do you know who Thaddeus Stevens was? Do you hear stories about the things that he did in the Civil War era Congress to push for equality, equality of many different kinds, in fact? Uh, If not, why do you think that's true? How do we define the people that we hold up as heroes in this country? It's a subject that I think a lot of us are thinking about these days a lot more uh, as we reconsider the legacies of lots of historical Americans and we see people's statues coming down, uh, Confederate statues coming down. Some people would like to see our founders' statues reconsidered or come down because of their involvement with institutions like slavery and other forms of inequality. What do you make of how we sort all of that out uh, as Americans, uh, who are your heroes? Call and tell us about the people 
that you lift up or would want to see lifted up in our history. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Of course, we can't talk about this subject without talking about race and the differences uh, that uh, unfold in American history because of racism. Um, Call and tell us about heroes that you know of or idolize uh, who aren't heroes uh, because of their race, who aren't given their due recognition in your estimation because of who they are or what color they are. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones, and you can always go to social media um, to, uh, to, to, to join us as well. Before we get to our listeners, Bruce, uh, I do want to talk about why you think um, Thaddeus Stevens is not better known, is not given that status of American hero alongside uh, others, especially of his era. Um, you know, the, 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 the arguments he has, <clears throat> for instance, with, with President Lincoln um, about slavery, the end of slavery, the end of the war, uh, really suggest uh, that he was in a, in a more virtuous place in many ways than the president was, and yet Everybody thinks of Lincoln as a hero. Uh, and not as many people give that same due to Thaddeus Stevens. How come well, that's so? <laughs> exactly right. Um, I think uh, what uh, the the key idea, it seems to me, in the discussion of who are our heroes, is really who are we? What values do we hold dear? How do we see the world? And that, in turn, shapes who we pick out of the past to idolize, to celebrate, to build statues for. And so it was uh, that uh, as the Republican Party and the North in general, following the Civil War's end, and following the defeat of Reconstruction in the 1870s, began to retreat from the values that had animated the struggle against slavery. It also turned its back on the people who had been in the forefront of the struggle against slavery and racial discrimination. Um, Lincoln uh, remained a hero because, in, in part because historians began to depict him as a conservative, which uh, appealed to the increasingly conservative political instincts of the post-Civil War Republican Party. And before very long, uh, outright hostility to what the Union had been fighting for during the Civil War and Reconstruction, hostility to those goals became entrenched. In academia, a professor by the name of William Dunning at Columbia University uh, helped to solidify a view of the Civil War that basically said um, it was an unfortunate occurrence in which both sides were valiant, both sides were noble. Uh, It was a very sad and probably avoidable struggle, conflict that should have been avoided and Reconstruction was even worse. Um, And uh, following Dunning's influence, a whole generation of historians followed in his footsteps. So, for example, by the time John Kennedy goes to college in Harvard, that's the version of the Civil War he's being taught, including that Thaddeus Stevens and radical Republicans were villains uh, trying to impose Negro rule on the poor, uh, innocent, defeated, uh, well-intentioned white South. And JFK puts that interpretation into a book that wins him the Pulitzer Prize, Mm -hmm. Profiles in Courage. And it's only after the Civil War gets underway that Kennedy reportedly begins to wonder whether he hadn't been sold a bill of goods while he was in college. Yeah. 
Um, and it's really not until uh, the 1970s that historians begin in a systematic way to rethink this conservative and racially uh, influenced view of the, uh, of, of the Civil War era. And so Thaddeus Stevens begins to creep back into public consciousness. So, for example, he does indeed appear finally in a, uh, a movie that seems to try to depict him in a positive light, uh, the Lincoln film mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. of about 10 years ago. But even that makes him look uh, like as much of an impediment to abolition as a champion of abolition makes Lincoln look like the prime mover, for example, behind the 13th Amendment. And you'd never know that from that film that Thaddeus Stevens was for that amendment a full year before Abraham Lincoln came around to endorsing the idea. Yeah. So yeah. This, it's still an uphill struggle to try to make people recognize uh, that it required the push of people whose thinking was far ahead of their time, so to speak, to get what needed to be done actually accomplished. And so it is that within the last couple of months, a statue has finally gone up of Thaddeus Stevens in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, where he long lived and uh, had his law office. Yeah, yeah. Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about Thaddeus Stevens, about American heroes and American history. Want to get to you on the phones and on social media, Ben and uh, St. Clair Shores, Roger in Detroit. We'll start with you if you want to join them. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest right now is uh, Bruce Levine, who is a professor of emeritus of history at University of Illinois. He's written a book called Thaddeus Stevens, Civil War Revolutionary Fighter for Racial Justice. We're talking about Stevens, the role he played in Civil War era America, and why he's not better remembered uh, by American culture today. It's a really important question that we're facing in a number of different ways as we kind of reconsider heroship in America. Who deserves a statue? Who deserves a street named after them or a school? We're asking those questions about Confederates, of course, but we're also asking those questions about the founders of this nation. Uh, Where does Stadius Stevens fit into all of that? We want to hear from you as well. Uh, what the what kinds of uh, criteria do you use to determine who your heroes are in American history? Uh, do you think of the founders of this nation as heroes? Do you think maybe of Confederates uh, as heroes? I know a lot of people who do, uh, even though they live in the North, <laughs> in Michigan and, and other places like that. Um, what do you think we ought to do with all of these legacies? Uh, how do we sort them out in a way that makes sense? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work into the conversation. Let's start with Roger in Detroit. Roger, what's on your mind? Hi. Hey. Hi. Good, good, good morning. How are uh-huh. you? Good. How are you? Okay. Listen, thank you for having uh, Dr. Levine on. It was great, a great uh, opportunity to talk about the Civil War and, and also talk about some of the uh, key figures in the war. And certainly, from my perspective, Thaddeus Stevens ranks very high in that list. So my question is, did, did the radical Republicans have any impact on Lincoln's movement from a conservative white Republican from Illinois to the more, much more embracing the idea of the Emancipation Proclamation and ultimately his move to Turbulent to, uh, you know, to uh, abolish slavery. I just want to get his thoughts on that. 
Yeah, great question, Roger. Uh, Bruce, there, there is this, this evolution of most of the characters uh, who, who are involved in the run-up to the war, the war itself, and then, of course, the, the aftermath of it. Lincoln, Lincoln is one of those. Talk about the influence of Stevens and the other radical Republicans on that evolution. Well, I think it's easier to talk about their impact on the evolution than it is to talk about their impact specifically on Lincoln. Uh, because Lincoln doesn't keep a diary, or if he did, the diary hasn't survived. Mm-hmm. And his letters don't give us an indication of what, or better to say, who uh, influenced his thinking during the war. Um, Frederick Douglass says that it's the logic of the situation that the Union side of the war finds itself in that compels the Republican Party to move to a more and more firmly, radically anti-slavery position in order simply to defeat the forces of this Union. But there are plenty of people who want to put, put down secession who don't agree with an anti-slavery component mm-hmm. to the war. So uh, there's nothing automatic about this. And the people who have to give voice to what Frederick Douglass calls the intrinsic logic of the situation are precisely the abolitionists out of Congress and the r- radicals in Congress who keep pounding away on the necessity to do away with slavery in order to win the war. And at first, Lincoln resists this logic because he thinks that an anti-slavery program will undermine the Union cause by alienating almost half of the northern population Mm -hmm. and those in the slave states who are still attached to the Union. There are four of those states. And Lincoln even has illusions about uh, the politics of people in the Confederacy. He thinks that most of them are basically pro-Union and can be won back to the Union um, if the Union simply is unnecessarily antagonizing them and fighting against slavery, he feels sure, would antagonize them. By the middle of 1862, Lincoln has begun to see through these mistakes. Mm -hmm. And he says in a couple of letters to Southern conservatives that bending to pro-slavery pressure has made him make the biggest mistakes of the Civil War. And so he's clearly leaning increasingly toward the radicals um, from that point onward. And so the Emancipation Proclamation, for something for which the radicals had been pressing mm-hmm. since the beginning of the war, is really an expression of their program. Um, and they cheer it, of course, when Lincoln moves in that direction. And the radicals are also changing, and just as importantly, public opinion by what they're saying sure. uh, and what they're doing and making it possible for Lincoln thereby to move in a more anti-slavery direction, creating uh, a public opinion, creating a constituency for the more uh, emphatically anti-slavery, anti-racist measures that Lincoln begins to take. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Roger, really appreciate the call and the, the provocative question. Um, I want to quickly go to Ed in Detroit. Ed, I'm running out of time, but I wanted to get through your question in here. Okay. Uh, for most of the 20th century, the teaching of history, particularly at the K-12 level, was badly infected by the myth of the lost cause. And I think that the, the Southerners made the radical Republicans look like uh, evil bogeyman. Mm. And that's why so many of us do not recall the stalwart defenders of union and liberty yeah uh, ed uh, that's a really that's a really interesting point as well uh, bruce i've only got about a minute left but i want to have you respond to that well i completely agree um you you and and this is not simply something happening uh, at the behest of southerners but northerners as well you see this uh in hollywood for example a whole series of films beginning with the birth of a nation 
right down through the 30s and 40s uh, 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 echo the myths of the so-called lost cause, the pro-South view of the Civil War and what that Civil War was about. And it remains a struggle to try to bring the truth about the Civil War era uh, to the attention of the American population. Okay, uh, Bruce Levine, uh, it was really great to have you here for this conversation, and uh, it is really a wonderful, wonderful read, uh, your book. Thanks so much thank you. for being with thank us. You. Thank you for that nice comment, and thank you for having me. Yeah. Okay, that is going to do it for us this week. Uh, come back Monday when we're going to talk with reporter Tim Alberta about his new article that describes how politics, quote, poisoned the evangelical church. Really interesting part of our modern history and some of the culture wars uh, that we are uh, enduring right now. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Ossidan. Our program director is Joan Isabella. <clears throat> our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. Also want to give a shout out to the folks at KBIA, the NPR affiliate in Columbia, Missouri, which is where I am. They are the ones who are making it possible for me to join you in Detroit for Detroit Today. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday. <laughs>